few romances can ever surpass that of the granite citadel on top of the beetling precipices of Machu Picchu, the crown of Inca land, Hiram Bingham. A mule trail created in 1890 laid the route for American explorer Hiram Bingham. Little had been explored in this region of the Urubamba River Valley, known to many today as the Sacred Valley. On July 23rd of 1911, Bingham, along with Peruvian Sergeant Carrasco, were camped near a river when they met a farmer, Melchor Artiega, who told Hiram and those with him of some ruins nearby up a steep slope. Bingham asked Artiega if he could lead them to the ruins. The farmer refused, citing the slippery conditions of the slope. Artiega's mind was changed, though, after Bingham offered him a Peruvian soul, three to four times the farmer's daily earnings. The next morning, Artiega, Bingham, and Sergeant Carrasco set out encountering not only slippery conditions and thick vegetation, but vipers as well. They crossed the Urumbamba on a makeshift bridge of logs, slick with the rain that had previously fallen in the valley. Then came the steep slope which the three men climbed up, sliding, I'm sure, at times, dodging more vipers at others. Two hours after they had set out, they reached the plateau, where a group of people offered them sweet potato and cold water. This group was another farming family, friends of Artiega's. This family had lived in the area for about four years at that point, and had farmed the area as well. They informed Bingham and the sergeant of some ruins just a little further away on the plateau. Artiega sat down to catch up with his friends as a young boy led Bingham and Carrasco to beautiful stone terraces some ten feet high and two hundred feet long that had been reclaimed from the jungle and were actively being farmed by their new acquaintances. The three of them soon found themselves in a maze of beautiful houses and exquisite stonework. Bingham and Carrasco continued to be guided by the young farm boy, and the more the three of them traversed the vegetated ruins, the more Bingham realized that what he had stumbled on was truly special. Indeed, what Bingham had found is now known the world over as Machu Picchu. In terms of location, Machu Picchu is northwest of the city of Cusco. Because of the way the Andes mountain range bends at this point, the site actually sits on the northern slope of the mountain range. One could take a train from Oyente Tambo to the base of the mountain. Of course, there is also the Inca Trail system, which, coming from the east, you travel through the Inti Punku, or Sungate, which offers a spectacular view of the site. Coming west, the Inca would travel along a stone path hewn from the cliffside until the trail is literally cut off. The only thing to bridge the gap is a log bridge, which could have easily been removed if desired. Of course, Machu Picchu was never what the Inca called the site. Machu Picchu is actually the name of the mountain that rises above the site itself. 
Nobody knows what the true name of the site is. The last time its name was uttered was likely nearly five centuries ago. Only the mountains remember its name now. Whatever it was called, its construction was a masterpiece of engineering. The site of Machu Picchu sits on a saddle between Machu Picchu and the smaller summit of Wanapichu. Those that built the site had to level the area, leveling some spots and filling in others. Parts of the foundation are on outcrops of granite bedrock, but much of the foundation is irregular and rests on two fault lines. Water is drained from the site thanks to a deep layer of loose rock, which is held in and stabilized by hidden underground walls. The rock for this foundation, and much of the site itself, was taken from the mountain, and you can see the scars left by the quarries even today. Being spellbound by the site, one probably doesn't think about all of the earth moving that was necessary to achieve this wonder. In reality, earth moving represents up to 60% of all the work that it took to create Machu Picchu. And the foundation has withstood buildings, millions of tourists, and centuries of rain quite well. However, some buildings have subsided over the years and do have serious cracks. Given the nature of the site and its construction, how to fix such issues has puzzled even modern-day engineers. Many believe that Machu Picchu, which was really a small city, was built as an estate for Pachacuti. Others believe that the site is too late for that. Researchers have noted walls of this site and the defensive location. Situated between two steep slopes overlooking the Urumbamba, with a mountain nestled on one side, there are few options to approach the site. The narrow Inca trail from the east and west would have been the easiest though they could have easily been cut off just as well. Coming up the steep eastern slope would have been the next best option, though quite difficult. However, this is how many tourists arrive to the site each day, via bus. In the times of the Inca, enemies would be traversing a slippery slope, similar to what Bingham underwent. But like many other sites in the Andes, Machu Picchu was also a highly religious site. Shrines, altars, and temples are scattered throughout the site. Meanwhile, there are niches for idols and mummies, as well as several tombs. The best way to get to know Machu Picchu is, of course, by touring it. So let's get started. To help guide us, a map of the site is available on the website courtesy of John Hemming's Monuments of the Inca. Admittedly, scanning of the map left it a bit blurry along the binding. However, there are also a plethora of pictures available from that book, as well as some of my own. Both will be useful as we move around the site. We'll start in the Agricultural Section, or the House of the Agricultural Guardians. This is the modern entrance of the site. Visitors walk along a terrace, reach a dry moat, the inner city wall, and one of the longest staircases at the site. 
There are over 40 terraces in this section, but they were more for controlling erosion than for agriculture. The steepness of this slope requires walls that are 11 and a half feet high and only provide about 10 feet of horizontal surface. Enough for some agriculture production, but not much. Now at the staircase, one would head up to the old city gate. However, from my recollection and experience, a part of those stairs were closed when I visited. And don't be surprised if they are too when you are able to go. In fact, different parts of the site tend to be blocked off at times. This is to alleviate the site of traffic and allow for restoration. I recall going upward along a different trail, not there during the time of the Inca, to a portion of the Inca Trail itself. Since we are taking this little bit of a detour, we can discuss this upper portion of the site. One of the first things you will see ahead of you are nine vertical blocks in a line and very evenly spaced. It's believed that this was a Kayanka, or administration building. It may have also housed troops and acted as a tambo, seeing as it was just off the Inca Trail. On the terrace above the Kayanka, now overgrown and taken by the jungle, is what was called by Bingham the Upper Cemetery. Here, Bingham and his team excavated several skeletons from a nearby cave. And this isn't the only place where bodies were uncovered. In fact, there are about 50 burial caves at Machu Picchu, many on the slopes below the city. Given how thick the vegetation is on the slope, you could walk right by one without ever noticing it. Moving north, down towards the main site, there's a huaca, or shrine, called Funerary Rock. Of course, it is difficult to say exactly what it was used for. The two leading theories is that it was a platform used for sacrificing of llamas, or as a funerary altar, displaying mummified bodies. This area is also overlooked by the upper terraces and platform, which may have held spectators of any ritual that took place at this shrine. Near the funerary rock sits the watchman's hut. This is a small, lone hut which overlooks the Urumbamba River. It was used to keep an eye out, of course. But what is interesting is how its window perfectly frames a nearby peak across the river. Remember, the Inca incorporated the landscape into their architecture quite often, and typically this created a connection to something religious, such as a huaca or a deity. Stopping prior before heading through the old gate provides an opportunity to view the main site. Here one can notice a distinct division in the site with a large grassy plaza in the middle separating the two divisions. One theory behind this division is that it is related to the Moati system under the AU. We've seen this kind of division before in the city of Cusco, with Hanan Cusco and Huron Cusco, or Upper and Lower Cusco. There is some disagreement with the idea of the Moati division being present at Machu Picchu. However, if Machu Picchu was an estate for Pachacuti, then his panaca would have acquired the site after his death. And what is a panaca 
but a royal AU. Entering the old gate of Machu Picchu and ascending down the stairs, we come across the Torian, or Bastion, within the residential sector. The building is named due to its curved wall and medieval look. It was constructed of very fine ashlar masonry that rises out of the bedrock and has that typical inward lean as the wall rises. The curve of the wall is a very rare architectural element in the Andes, but we have seen it before at the Cori Concha with its outer curved wall. Meanwhile, art historian Carolyn Dean has made the observation that the masonry rising out of the ground is similar to grafting a tree. The walls appear to grow out of the bedrock itself, and thus weaves the built environment into the natural. Both features, the curved wall and the grafting, can be found at other estates built by Pachacuti. The purpose of this building was entirely religious. It was a sun temple, where the curved wall frames the sun during the June solstice, or Inti Rami. The window opposite frames the sun during the December solstice, or Kapak Rami. Coming back to the curved wall, one archaeologist has put forth the theory that it is meant to represent the rainbow that Manco Kapak first saw when he entered the Cusco Valley, as well as the banner the Inca used to associate himself with the sun. The temple itself sits on a giant granite boulder, jutting up from the ground. Under this boulder is a little grotto with a stepped carving, and that is just part of the grotto. Further inside are niches in the walls, large enough that they may have held mummy bundles, and was thus named by Bingham the Royal Mausoleum. Assuming this is indeed what the place was used for, it is quite possible that Pachacuti himself was housed here at times when he died. Not far from the Torian sit the stone baths. The baths are actually 16 cisterns, too shallow for bathing or for storing water. But like everything at Machu Picchu, it likely had some ceremonial and spiritual significance. Cascading cisterns were also created at Tambo Mache, Choque Quiro, Pisac, Ollante Tambo, and the Island of the Sun. The ones at Machu Picchu are much more dramatic when compared to any others, but they were clogged for centuries. It was in the 1990s that a few engineers were able to get the cascades running again, some 450 years after they were first buried. Climbing a series of steps, you'll arrive at the remnants of a quarry before turning right, entering the sacred plaza. The house of the high priest is located here, but so are a few masma. Masma are temples that only have walls on three of their sides. Like many of the structures at Machu Picchu, their roofs have long been removed. The principal temple may have been meant for Viracocha and has a large stone altar flanked by another stone bench or smaller altar. The other masma is called the Temple of the Three Windows. These are large windows, 
opening onto the main square that divides the site in two. And it is possible that these windows were not just meant to enjoy the view. They possibly represented Pakarik Tambo, the Pakarina or place of Inca origin. A decade after he first saw the granite citadel, Hiram Bingham came to believe that it was Machu Picchu and not Pakarik Tambo that was the actual Pakarina for the Inca. Even back then, Bingham could see how religious and holy the site would have been in the time of the Inca. He also noted how well defended the site was and how it had been completely hidden from the Spanish, despite all the witnesses they interviewed to obtain their historical accounts. Could it be that the site of Machu Picchu was so important that only a select few knew about its existence because it was the birthplace of the Inca and thus their most sacred site? Despite the fact that Machu Picchu holds more religious shrines, temples, and huacas than Pakarik Tambo, we'll never know if Bingham's theory was really a reality. But let us return to our tour and continue through the sacred plaza to Inti Huatuna. Carved right out of the bedrock of the mountain, Inti Huatuna is a masterpiece of stonework. Despite the craftsmanship it took to carve, nobody knows what it really is. An altar for ceremonies? A representation of the mountain spirit? What about a sundial? We know that the Inca recorded the movements of the sun, Pillars were erected outside of Cuzco to track the sun and thus the agrarian cycle. Intihuatuna is a beautiful monument within Machu Picchu, and not knowing what it was actually used for only adds to the mystery and wonder of the site. Let's discuss Huanapichu real quick. While Machu Picchu means old peak, Huanapichu means young peak. And while the name is apt when talking about the mountains themselves, Huanapichu towers over the site itself. The area at the top is quite small, but has an observatory at its summit. Below Huanapichu, along the narrow trail hugging the granite cliffs, leads to the temple or cave of the moon. It is another mausoleum and shrine to the rocks, mountains, waterfalls, and to Pachamama herself. Again, the brilliant masonry and skillfully carved niches are on display as well. I'm sure many of you know this, but for those of you who don't, entrance to Machu Picchu is limited to a couple thousand people per day, a limit that may still be too high when it comes to preserving the site. Given the size of Huanapichu and the Cave of the Moon, visits to these sites are even more limited. So if you want to see them, try to buy the additional tickets if you can. Near the trail leading to Huanapichu and the Cave of the Moon is the Sacred Rock. Of course, this name is problematic, as we've already covered several rock features that were sacred. However, this feature is very unique. The massive rock stands on its side in a sunken court flanked by two masma. One will quickly realize that this rock actually replicates Mount Yanyantin to the east. However, the rock also mirrors another mountain, Pumasillo, 
or the puma's claw to the west, which is where the sun actually sets during Kapakrami. Unlike several features we've seen previously, we actually know that this rock was a shrine to the spirits of Mount Yanyantin, and possibly Pumasillo. Now we come to another residential sector, where we will begin with the upper group. These residences overlooked the main square of Machu Picchu and are enclosed entirely by a wall with two gates. South of the upper group is the three doors group. Though at a lower elevation, this was a larger group of conchas or rooms for the elites. The largest building in this area lies to the north and has been identified as a kayanka but it may have housed servants in Yanakona. There is a double masma in this feature that holds two mortars right next to each other. They seem very out of place, but they aren't going anywhere either as they are carved right out of the bedrock, much like Intihuatuna. They appear to have been used for grinding maize and chuno, though some argue that they are not concave enough for this. Either way, being situated between the two masma, the mortars likely had a ceremonial function. And perhaps, if they were only used during ceremonies, that may explain why they aren't as worn down as other mortars would be when grinding maize and other food. Continuing on, there is the prison group. Bingham initially believed that this was really an area to hold prisoners, but there are many who have argued against this, especially if the site was an estate. This area holds numerous niches, possibly meant for holding huacas or mummy bundles. But the most distinctive feature in this part of Machu Picchu is the Condor Stone, or Temple of the Condor. Carved right out of the bedrock, there is little mistaking the creature for what it is. If you take a few steps away from its beak, you have a very large rock formation that actually seems to be an extension of the feature on the ground. It appears that the rock formation gives the condor wings, and the bird is actually soaring. Whether this was intentional or not is unclear, but it doesn't stop people from taking notice. What the carving of the condor was actually used for is not certain, but it may have been used as an altar of some sort, possibly for live sacrifices. The blood of the victim, animal, or human may have run down the grooves of the stone near its beak, simulating the bird killing its prey in the wild. Once again, we go up some stairs. On the left is the Torian, but on the right is the King's group. The Inca chambers are believed to have been in this location, overlooking a possible garden where evidence of maize and potatoes have been found. The complex itself is of beautiful masonry and steeped pitched roofs. The lintels of the doorways are solid granite, some weighing up to three tons. Within the king's group, there is a hole in the ground. What's so special about that? Well, much like how the image of Inti was brought out every day at the Kori Kancha, it is thought that a similar image was placed on a pole in this location. It may have been meant to reflect the sun, 
to Yaktapata. Yaktapata is another site that was first uncovered by Bingham after his excursion to Machu Picchu and is about five kilometers away as the condor flies. Bingham never returned to study the site and it was essentially lost after Bingham's visit, swallowed up by the jungle. In the early 2000s, explorer Hugh Thompson, using Bingham's notes, found Yaktapata once again. Now this episode is about Machu Picchu. Why am I bringing up another site? Because it is becoming more apparent that Machu Picchu is connected directly to Yaktapata. The latter sits to the west and was an observatory for Machu Picchu, and you can actually see Machu Picchu quite clearly from Yaktapata. The sun shines into the overlooked temple at the site and is thought to have been shown back to Machu Picchu during the summer solstice. This connection is a reminder that though it is extraordinary in its own right, Machu Picchu was much more than just a standalone site. It is intertwined into a much larger complex of sites and landscapes. Bingham would continue on his expedition and find several other sites, including the estate at Vitkos and the final capital of the Inca, Vilcabamba. Being a professor of South American history at Yale University, he was never formally trained in archaeology. However, Bingham would return to Machu Picchu and work at the site for several seasons. He led digs in 1912, 1914, and 1915. Pottery, weapons, tools, and even mummies were taken from the site and ended up at Yale. Over time, his relationship with the locals, and eventually the Peruvian government, broke down, and it left a rocky relationship with Peru and Yale, to say the least. Yale would come to reveal that it had nearly 40,000 artifacts from Machu Picchu. After decades of the Peruvian government asking for them back, some 5,000 artifacts of stone tools, ceramics, animals, and human remains returned. 366 were of museum quality and are now displayed at the Machu Picchu Museum in Cusco. Bingham would go on to live a very interesting life before becoming the governor of Connecticut for a day. He served such a short term because he was actually elected U.S. Senator at the same moment a position he would hold until 1933. Bingham's story, like Maria Reich, the Lady of the Lines in Nazca, deserves several episodes on its own. Hiram Bingham died on June 6, 1956, nearly 45 years after he helped to bring one of the great wonders of the world out of hiding. Machu Picchu, one of, if not the greatest archaeological find of the 20th century, was likely an estate of Pachacuti. In regards to other estates built by Pachacuti, there are several similarities, as they all tied together religion, architecture, and the landscape. However, none of them are as picturesque, mysterious, and hold our fascination as Machu Picchu, the crown of Inca land. Thank you.